You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. First chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you that you have blessed us with your Son, with life, and with unceasing love. You have blessed us with salvation through Jesus. Thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. Please help us to walk in your will, living a life in step with your word. Thank you for your love with which you predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will. Your will has been revealed to us through your word, through your son. We praise you for your glorious grace, which you have blessed us in the beloved. In you we have redemption through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of your grace. You have lavished your grace upon us. We don't deserve a drop of it, yet you flood us with extravagant grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of your will according to your purpose which you set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Lord, we thank you that we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure is you, Lord. We, the body of your church, Red Sea, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Jesus, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Lord Jesus, we give all praise and glory to you. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us to set our minds on the things of God and not the things of man, and to receive the blessing that has been bestowed upon us. We follow you and thank you for the cross. Thank you for the life, and thank you for the light. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning. For those of you who might not know who I am, my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders here at Red Sea. This past Thursday, we finally signed the final documents to refinance our home. Uh, We bought it two years ago, needed to refinance it, believe it or not, within two years. And uh, I think overall, I think we each of us, all four of us, signed about 1,487 documents each. Um, it was an arduous task. But the most frustrating part wasn't just that we're signing and getting hand cramps. It was the fact that we had to deal with a particular mortgage company who was very, very frustrating. 
On their website, you wouldn't know that, though. On your our website, they say this on their website, we believe that we have an obligation to homeowners to build a business that focuses on the one thing that humanity strives for in life, growing happiness. I, I want to be happy. I'm going with these guys, okay? But there's more, there's more. Then they say, this company, is building a model of excellence in the mortgage industry and wishes to be an example of what the company should what a company should be. How do we do this? We start with our brand promise, which is simple. Relationships matter. Relationships matter. In fact, every time one of the service people hung up the phone, the last thing they said is, here at this company, relationships matter. And the reason I know that and have that memorized is because I had to call them numerous times. Okay? I originally called them and said, hey, I want that you own our mortgage. You're, you're managing it. I want to refinance to you. And I had to call them three times, and I got three completely different answers on how to do that. So we chose to go with somebody else. And as we established a relationship with another mortgage broker and moved on to that, there was a particular document. It wasn't very many pages that we needed from our, our, the people holding our mortgage, and they wouldn't give it up. And it would delay us weeks in our refinancing process because I called, the, our mortgage broker called, we emailed, we did all we could, and he contacted three times. On four, I called four times. Finally, I got to the point where, hello, yes, I want this document. No, do not fax it to him. Email it to me right now. I'm sorry, sir, that's a different department. Then you call that department and have them email that to me right now. I will stay on the line all day waiting for that to show up in my inbox. Surprise! It shows up in my inbox. Okay? And um, I, I wish their brand promise was not relationships matter. I wish it was documents matter. Okay? <laughs> Don't you hate it when companies say one thing and then they do another? They, they claim expertise and great service to be a leading in the industry, whatever they're in, and yet they deliver poor service, poor workmanship, and all you really get is frustration. Don't you hate that? They brand themselves as one way, and your experience with them is very, very different. We have slogans for this kind of thing. For example, actions speak louder than what? Actions speak louder than words, right? Or uh, don't just talk the talk, you need to... Walk the walk. We know those things. They know those things. It didn't prevent them from treating us the way they did. Don't you wish companies' actions matched the words that they spoke? Don't you wish that it would match better? How about churches? How about churches? Don't you wish sometimes the actions of churches matched the words of churches better? How about individual Christians? How about you and me as individuals? Does it matter that we talk the talk and walk the walk? We will see today's passage that Jesus says, yes, it does matter that we walk the talk and walk the walk. Both. 
Now, before we get to that passage, uh, today's passage, I need to remind you, because this is an extension of what happened last week, and if you weren't here, this will catch you up. If you were here, it's a reminder. And last week, Josh unpacked the passage in Matthew 16, where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says that question, who do people say that I am? And they gave the typical answers. All, people have all sorts of answers for that, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, some say uh, Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. It's a little disconcerting that all those guys were dead, but other than that, um, they, they gave you all the They had many opinions, all wrong answers. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The very important personal question. Forget them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Son of the living God. And Jesus reminded him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He said, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You understand this, Peter? Not because you're so smart and you figured it out. Nobody is that smart. It's because the Father in heaven showed it to you. And then Jesus continues. He said to Peter and to the disciples, He says, uh, you're, I tell you, you, uh, you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be it will bound in heaven what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, Jesus is going to build his church. He's doing the building. It's his church. And how does he do that? Through revealed truth and people. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Spiritual warfare, the aggression pushback of Satan won't matter. It's still going to prevail. And then he says that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to the church. We talked about this in home community. This isn't, this isn't just keys to the car when you're 16. This is a responsibility that the church has with the keys of the kingdom. How does Jesus build his church through people, uh, the people of God he's revealed truth to? How does he do that? How does it, what, excuse me, what does it look like for us to use the keys of the kingdom? He's given them to us to use, the church. What does it mean? How do we do, what does it look like? Do we, is it up to each individual? Do we vote on it? Do we take a poll and see what popular opinion dictates? How do we know how to use the keys of the kingdom? In our passage today, Jesus is going to address those questions. And he's going to tell us that to use the keys of the kingdom responsibly and effectively, we must get our message right and we get, must get our method right. Our message and method both matter. Will you stand with me as we read our passage for today? We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Uh, you can look at your Bible or your phone, or you can look up at the screen. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, behind, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his life? Or what can a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Truly, I say to you that there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our glorious Lord and Holy Spirit, we just ask you to be with us today. Help us to understand your word, not just from 2,000 years ago, but for us today, the word of God. And we thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. To use the keys of the kingdom responsibly and effectively, we must get our message right and our method right. First, in the first part of this passage, Jesus insists that we get the message right. And that message is simple. What he's trying to, I'll summarize in this way, the cross of Christ is our message. The cross of Christ is our message. Where do I get this? Well, looking at verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says, from, it begins with from that time. He's, he has to show his disciples. It's indicating a transition. He's going from leveraging the, what he just talked about and saying, okay, now the theme of Matthew, the theme of what Jesus is going to focus on for the rest of his life is going to focus on this going to Jerusalem. In fact, this is the one of the first of four times that Jesus explicitly talks about going to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised again. And notice that Jesus says that he must go. He must go. Jesus is clear that his movement towards Jerusalem is according to a greater plan, and that it's actually necessary for him if he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why Jerusalem? Jerusalem, quite simply, is the, the location of the temple, location of the authorities of Israel at the time. So he's heading to that epicenter of worship and power, and that's where God has ordained that this happened. And he must suffer many things, as we will see, and he'd be killed and, and raised. He knew already the death is coming and the resurrection is coming. Jesus already had that in mind. And notice that Jesus is, he's not making a prediction that something might happen like you would make a weather forecast. Hey, it's probable that this might happen. No, no, no. He's saying this will happen. I must go there because this has to happen in time, in sequence. It's a predetermined plan. In fact, many, uh, I guess you probably a few months, maybe a year or so later, Peter's going to, after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter's going to give a sermon, the first sermon, book of Acts. And he's going to say to the men of Israel, to the crowds that gather around the men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because you were here, all of you in this crowd. And then he, and he goes on, and this is, this is the punchline for Peter, that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus being there was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he goes on, that you crucified and killed by lawless men. How's that? This was the plan of God, and you were the instruments by killing Jesus. And then we also know that Paul later to the Corinthians says, for I delivered over to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he died, was buried, and was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures. Those, those phrases, in accordance with the Scriptures, isn't just filler there. He's saying the whole Bible is pointing towards this event. And therefore, when Jesus did, that's why it's of first importance. The Gospel is not about us. We need to remind ourselves the Gospel 
is not about us. It's an announcement of what God has done for us and what He is doing in us. But He's doing it, He's done it only through Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ, His dying on the cross, is the epicenter of the gospel message. The gospel message has a lot of things to say, a lot of benefits to us. But the epicenter, the core, the heart of the gospel message is the cross of Christ. That's what he's trying to say here. And that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still selfish, while we were still rebellious against God, Christ died for our sins. That is what the gospel has has us to understand. And if you're here today and you have, don't, have never heard that or you've never responded to that or, you're, or you have some questions about what is the cross about or what is the gospel about, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you about that. We need to continue here. This message may seem obvious to us now, especially if you've been in the church a while, you've been a Christian for a while, that Christ died on a cross and rose again. We talk about that all the time. Therefore, it's, why is this such a big deal? This was news for them. This is the first time that Jesus has explicitly laid out the plan and described it for them clearly. And this, for the disciples, was not good news. It upset them. We see this in verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says this, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What Jesus was saying was the opposite of what the disciples expected and what they wanted to hear. Peter took him aside. Matthew tells us something explicit about their body movement. They're with the disciples, and Peter goes up alongside Jesus, and he he tried to remove Jesus from the other disciples, pull him away a little bit. Maybe maybe like, and I was thinking about this, maybe like sort of like a a campaign manager for somebody who's trying to be elected, and that elected person trying to be elected starts saying some absurd things. I know it's far-fetched, but it might happen, Okay. And so the campaign manager says, what are they doing? I've got to stop this before it gets out of hand. And I, I think Peter was acting that way. He intends to intervene before Jesus gets carried away. And I think he goes over to Jesus, and he maybe puts his arm around Jesus, and he starts escorting him slowly, so not to draw attention to themselves, away from the other disciples. And, and Peter says to Jesus, dude, what are you doing? I think Peter, once in a while, may have called Jesus dude, okay? <laughs> Highly unlikely, but it's possible, so work with me here. He goes, dude, what are you doing? What are you saying? We just got this whole Christ thing down. We just got this whole thing about you being the Savior of the world down. And now you're talking about suffering? And what's up with this martyrdom talk? Um, uh, and, and, and why are you saying these things? Why are you talking through these things? And don't you know that this talk is upsetting to the boys? I think Peter referred to the other disciples as the boys, okay? <laughs> He said, so Peter continues, he says, no way this is going to happen. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. And look what, this is exactly what Peter says in the verse. This shall never happen to you. This shall never happen to you. As if Peter controlled the future. Maybe he was thinking that since Jesus had given him the keys of the kingdom, the whole idea of suffering and dying, he was just going to lock that up and put it away. I don't know. But it was audacious. We don't feel the weight of it, but it was audacious of Peter not only to correct Jesus, but to rebuke the Master. And and it says in there, he began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke him. 
He doesn't get very far because Jesus cuts him off. Jesus cuts him off. Look at verse 23. But he, but he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For, I have not, you, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus turned. I think Matthew records body language for a reason. He, he didn't have to say this, but I think Peter had pulled him aside, and I think Jesus now turns his body, so he's addressing Peter, but so the disciples can hear him say what he's saying. He's, in the, he's talking to Peter, but he's addressing all of them. He turned and said to Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. In opposing God's plan for Jesus, Peter was becoming a tool of Satan. In opposing God's plan for Jesus, Peter himself was becoming a tool for Satan. This is not a little thing. Not a little thing for Peter. Not a little thing for us. After, I think, maybe, after hearing that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, Satan makes a quick, preemptive, covert attack on Jesus. And he uses the very person that Jesus just commended. And Peter's objection, I think, was his own. But the force, the forcefulness of the rebuke was Satan's. The objection was Peter's. The forcefulness, the rebuke, came from Satan. And that's why Jesus addressed him as Satan. We know that Jesus has already gone head to head, toe to toe with Satan. Chapter 4 of Matthew. We looked at this a while ago. And in there, Satan knew that after Jesus was baptized, this is, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've got to put an end to this now. And he takes him out to the desert, and he tempts him, and shows him all sorts of things. And, and re, why was he tempted? Why was he trying to get Jesus to do? He was trying to get Jesus to do his own thing. Do it his own way. Don't do it according to the Father's plan. And Jesus did not yield and had victory over Satan at that time. Notice what Jesus says there. You are a hindrance, literally a stumbling block, a stone that you trip over to me, an obstacle, a hindrance to progress, a barrier. I think it's key wording here that just a little while ago, Jesus says, you are Peter, which his name means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And then a little while later, that rock is now a stumbling stone for the cross. It's not a little thing that Matthew doesn't want us to miss. For he tells us why. Jesus tells why did he respond so strongly against Peter and Satan. It says there, for because you are not setting your mind on things of God, that's Peter, but on the things of man. This is the reason why it's a big deal, requiring Jesus' force of response. Setting your mind. It's an ongoing perspective. It's, it's a fixation of what we value and then act accordingly. We set our mind on something. We, we think, 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 and then we do. We become obsessed with it. This fixation, he's saying, is not on, uh, God's, uh, from God's perspective, but is from our personal perspective or our cultural expectations. And, and Jesus gives us two sources of spiritual warfare and spiritual failure in our lives. In this one line. The first one is ourself. Our innate selfishness. We have defined it this way. Preferring other things other than God and then acting on those preferences. That's what sin is. Preferring other things, anything other than God, and then acting on those preferences. That's selfishness. That's what he's doing. And then Satan. And then Satan. Obviously, the demonic, he names the name, the spirit. Demonic forces which wreak havoc all over the world. And they combine. They work together. They're in cahoots. 
For example, in, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the course of the world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan. Among whom we all, we're all in the same boat, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Living in the flesh, carrying out our desires of body and mind. That's selfishness. Those two together is the dilemma that we all, every single human being, faces. That's the force that we're against. Now he says, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of your body and mind, that's an innate impulse, but our culture has made that special. Our culture, especially the American culture, has made that special. This, this is not just simply something that we are. It's, it's, it's downright, it's our rights. It's our right to live for ourselves. It's our right to be happy. Why do I say that? Well, my mortgage company told me that. It did. On the website. It says, to build a business that focuses on, listen to this wording, on the one thing that humanity strives for in life. What's that? Growing happiness. I, I think they hit the nail on the head. They're, they're being honest. Going into debt with a mortgage isn't exactly making you happy. You don't really own the home. Just stop paying your mortgage payment or your taxes and find that out. It's all a ruse. I digress. I digress. I'm obviously still working through some issues here, okay? Uh, and you know what? By the way, this is, this is where I, the next two things I'm going to say is going to offend one half of you, and the other thing is going to offend the other half, okay? You decide which half you are. We'll take a, we'll take a poll in a minute, Okay? We're Americans. We deserve to be happy. For crying out loud, it's in the Declaration of Independence. Is it not? Doesn't it say that? We hold these truths self-evident. That all men are created equal. True. That they are, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights. Okay? And among them are life, liberty, freedom, and what? What's the next line? The pursuit of happiness. It's our right. To pursue happiness is what we're about. That's the American way. And it's not only the American way, so that's the first half I've offended you. It's how we raise our children. It is. I, what's your evidence, Royce? Well, besides being a grandfather, let's look at Walt Disney's Frozen. Oh, now you're meddling. <laughs> and the song, I think it's Elsa. I, I lose track. My granddaughter knows all the songs, but, okay, who sings Let It Go? I think it got an Academy Award. Yes, it did. Okay, thank you. You heard that it did, right? Can you sing it for us? No, never mind. You could, okay. Okay, okay. One of the lyrics is, It's funny how some, di it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, the fears that once controlled me, I can't get me, get, can't, yeah, just sing it, Royce. <laughs> can't get to me, you, lyrics are not meant to be read, are they? <laughs> can't get to me at all, it's time to see 
what I can do to test the limits and break through, here's the punchline, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And that's what we teach our children. It's the American way and it's the Disney way. We're free. Our happiness, happiness is what it's about. Now, don't misunderstand me. The desire to pursue truth and freedom and joy, acceptance, security, significance are not wrong in and of themselves. We're created in the image of God, and those are the gifts that he wants to give us. However, God's word is clear that all we can find on our own and in the world are counterfeits of those. We pursue in the world and on our own counterfeits of those things. And the real things are only found in Christ through the gospel. The message of the cross is offensive to us personally and to the world. But the things contrary to the cross are offensive to God. That's what Jesus is saying. The message of the cross is offensive to us personally, all of us in this room, and to our culture. But the things contrary to the cross are offensive to God. Jesus continues. First, he said that the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, is our message. We are to declare that Christ died for our sins. But then Jesus goes on. He goes on, and this is where it gets a little more uncomfortable. He says, the next part of this, he says, the cross for Christ is our method. The cross of Christ is our message, but the cross for Christ is our method. Look at this. Jesus leverages the situation to clarify what a true follower of his looks like. He's leveraging this situation to do that. If, if he's going to build his church through them, what does that look like? If the church is going to use the keys of the kingdom responsibly and effectively, how do they do that? If God's plan for him is to suffer and go to the cross, what is, it, what is God's plan for his followers? If setting our minds on the things of man is to, be, is to be a tool of Satan, then what do we need to set our minds on to be tools of God? And Jesus now tells us those things. He answers those questions. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Look at that. Then Jesus told his disciples, group instruction time. Peter, you're now part of the group. Let's get this, all of us, get this straight. That's what he's doing. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, he said this implies a couple things. One, it implies it's open to everyone. It's open to everyone. This is not just something that for the disciples that he's talking to then. This is for us now. If anyone would come after me. But it also implies something else. It's the same for everyone. Not only is it open for everyone, but it's the same for everyone. This is not one of many alternatives. This is the way to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. The Jesus' emphasis here is uh, on the individual decision and commitment. We, we can't hide in the crowd on this one. Uh, come after me. Be a disciple. Follow me. Basically, to participate in what I'm doing. I'm building my church. Come on. Participate with me. That's what he's saying. 
And now he gives us three aspects of what it means to come after him. Three aspects of what it means to come after him. First, the first one is, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. That means to renounce the, renounce the centrality or priority of pursuing selfish gain. Paul says this great in Philippians 2. Paul describes, what does it mean to, re, uh, to deny yourself? Paul describes that. And I, I'm, not, I'm going to just go read his words to you. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We have ambitions, that's good, but selfish ambition and conceit, pride, I'm better than everybody else, that's a problem. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in, among yourselves that it was yours in Christ. And then he describes how Jesus, as God, became man, and even to the point of a suffering servant. That's what it means to deny ourselves. Jesus is our example of this. The message of the cross proclaims that Jesus denied himself. Let up, and it says, the second thing he says, let him take up his cross. This is the one we struggle with, I think, the most. Let him take up his cross. The cross, then and now, but more, more then, was a powerful yet repulsive metaphor. This would have been shocking for them the first year. It's one, the cross is symbolizing both pain and rejection. It was reserved for either the worst, most despicable criminals or for people that wanted, somebody wanted to treat, treat very cruelly and torture to death. It was not a pleasant thing. And yet this is the symbol that Jesus chooses to use for what it means to follow him. This means, what does it mean to take up our cross? Well, it means, I think, the way to rephrase it in our vernacular is, is to hold tightly the convictions of the gospel, hold tightly to our convictions of the gospel, and to accomplish something for the gospel, even if it costs us a lot. Even if it costs us a lot. That cost can range from simply inconvenience, or physical or emotional discomfort, rejection, persecution, but not, without, not outside the bounds of this is even torture and death for the sake of Christ, as many people around the world can testify. To be clear, this is not self-inflicted pain. This is not us punishing ourselves. This is not self-inflicted rejection that we're worthless. That's not what this is about. It is primarily, uh, it, this, this, the pain, the discomfort, the rejection is primarily brought about from people who, who resist and are opposed to the message of Christ and the work of Christ. Also through spiritual warfare, Paul, Jesus has already alluded to that, but also from our own struggles with our own selfish desires. The, the cross is pain and rejection. Those things cause that in our lives. Jesus is our example. The message of the cross it proclaims that he took up his cross literally for us. And then the third thing, let him follow me. Let him follow me. He says that Jesus is building his church, so wouldn't we want to participate in that? That's right, follow me. I'm, I just said I'm building my church. Come on, help me do this. It's an invitation. Are, you, are we contributing to the work? Follow me. Do the work that I'm doing. It is... It is to embrace and actively engaged in the mission of the church. We at Red Sea have gone to great lengths to define that mission. Why are we here for a church? We have that. And in, 
and if you've seen it, it's on the wall as you come into the foyer, this diagram. If you're not familiar with it, you're new here, you're not familiar, there's ha these handouts are in the, near, uh, there to the left. But we've identified our mission. It's not the only way to say it, but it's a way to say it, that this is what Christ is, uh, the church is about. It's to draw to Christ. It's to develop in community. It's to deploy into culture. Not the only way to say it, but it's a way to say it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that look like for us now? What does that look like? Let me offer a few suggestions. These are just possibilities. How about patiently and persistently seeking to resolve personal conflict? Pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation with other people, even if they refuse to be involved. Is that denying ourselves? Is that suffering discomfort for the sake of the gospel and pursuing what Jesus would want for us? Yes, it is. How about overcoming our fear and insecurities of sharing the gospel message with a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor, a friend, a family member? Do we need to deny ourselves? suffer some discomfort or maybe even embarrassment for the sake of the gospel and then follow what Jesus would want us to do? Yep. How about providing long, sacrificially providing long-term care for someone who, who may be difficult and may not even acknowledge it? Think parents and children. Parents, do you need to deny yourself? Do you need to have discomfort for the sake of the gospel with your children? Do you need to do with them what Christ wants you to do with them? Yes. Think adult children with older parents who need care. Is it any different? Some of us in this room are parenting little children. Some of us in this room are caring for elderly parents. No, no different. Think caregiver and chronically ill. We could go on and on. Working in a location or a cause or for a cause that might be met with strong resistance or even violence, think persecution. Not a big one in America, but in the rest of the world, that's probably the first thing people think of when they hear these words. Take up your cross and follow me. I think also it's intentionally applying the gospel to our own hearts. It's not just always about them, everybody else there. Sometimes denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus means we've got to wrestle with ourselves the sin and the selfishness in our own hearts. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4, where he says, in light of the gospel, what he said, he said, you still have things in you from your old way. He says, he uses the metaphor of taking off and putting on clothing. Take off the clothing, your old self, set it aside, change the way you think about things in light of the gospel, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he gives a series of examples. This is, this is denying ourselves, taking up our cross for the sake of the gospel, suffering discomfort, and then following Jesus, doing what he says for, that we already have given us in spiritually true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul uses a bunch of examples, and, and I've shared this with you guys before if you've been around Red Sea for a while, but I'll give it to you in a riddle. When is a thief no longer a thief? When is a thief no longer a thief? You want to answer? Okay, well, I, I thought I saw you raising your hand. What is a thief no longer a thief? What do we mostly say when he stops stealing? Right? 
when he stops stealing? That's not a gospel answer. That's not a following Jesus answer. Paul says this is what it means. If you're going to take off your old self, change the way you think, put on a new self, if you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus with a particular area of theft, what does that look like? This is what it looks like. Let the thief no longer steal, okay? But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may be able to have something to share with anyone with need. That's a gospel answer. Is that denying yourself to work with your own hands and give it away? Yep. Is that hard for the sake of the gospel to get over that? Yep. Does that mean you're following? Did Jesus do that? Yep. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross of Christ is our message. The cross for Christ is our method. Remember when Jesus said when we struggle with the cross of Christ in our message? He said, why do we struggle with that? He says, because you are setting, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Jesus shows that the same struggle hinders the cross for Christ. And his, for, same, same struggle hinders the, the cross for Christ as our method. And now Jesus, we're going to go through these very briefly, very quickly. Jesus says that there are, describes three obstacles that are in our way from doing that. Three obstacles. And they're more than just obstacles. They're more than just stumbling blocks that we step around. These are really three reasons why the cross for Christ is, is, as our method is not optional. It's not optional. Look at this, verse 25. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He gives a save-loss contrast. Save-loss contrast here. If we're trying to save our lives, determine and control our own lives and our own destiny, we will ultimately and eternally lose it. If we let go of our lives and turn it over to the gospel, we will receive a new history, a new identity, and a new destiny. And notice Jesus said, for my sake, for my sake. This is a gospel thing. It's a difference between having ownership of our lives and being stewards, having stewardship of our lives. An owner decides the purposes, priorities, and uses of something. If I own a car, own a house, I decide how it's used. But a steward doesn't. A steward is somebody who's entrusted with something of great value. And they are, which they do not own, but for which they will be held accountable for its use, the way the master said to use it. And Jesus is saying here, you are not owners of your life, you're stewards of the life given to you. And then he goes on. Verse 26. Verse 26. Again, he begins with four. Four, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What shall that man give? In return for his soul. He now uses a gain-forfeit contrast. A gain-forfeit contrast. If we gain the whole world, acquire wealth, possessions, status, fame, here in our life now, forfeits his soul. Give up our true acceptance, our true security, our true significance, both in this life and eternity. In the Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan used this one on Jesus. This is one of the three that he used on Jesus. He said to Jesus, hey, look at all the kingdoms in the world. I'll give them to you now if you just bow down and worship me. I'll just give them to you now. Why go through this whole suffering stuff? They're yours if you just bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? Something he said, has said, we've already heard. Be gone, Satan. You shall not, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus already unpacked this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do, you, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. 
but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys or thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's what you're going to worship. It's a pair of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question, it gives, it's an implied answer. It's an obvious answer. What shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer, nothing. What shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer, nothing. Then Jesus wants to know, why, why would we bank our lives on that if the answers are so obvious? Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The gospel message that we believe and declare is centered in the cross of Christ. Yes, it is. But it also includes the announcement of the same Christ who is going to someday return as judge and king. Jesus talks about his coming again frequently. We've already seen that in Matthew. This is an anticipated epic event, not just for Christians, but for the world. And notice that Jesus says, each person, each person, again, individual, decision time, each person according to what he has done. Paul said that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And some of you are going to say, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought as Christians we're saved by faith, not by works. What's all this talk about judgment and being held accountable for our works, good or evil? That's not gospel. And yet, it really is. For Paul, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, "For, um, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. In other words, he's saying, what shall man give in return for his soul? Nothing. It's a gift. But then, in verse 10, Paul continues. For, because, what's the consequence of all that? We, those who have responded to the gospel in faith, we are his workmanship, creating in Christ Jesus four good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. He combines both the cross of Christ is our message, in verses 8 and 9, And that the cross for Christ is our method. Verse 10. We are his workmanship, created for good works. In other words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. One last thing here I just want to say before I conclude is verse 28. Um, If you're paying attention as you read it, some people get thrown by verse verse 28. And and because of that, I want to just very, very quickly address it. He says, and truly, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is that? What is that? And I don't think it's as confusing as there is some debate about what he's talking about. Some feel it's the transfiguration. won't go into it because Josh is going to talk about it next week. I think, personally, I think Jesus is alluding to what he's already, what set this whole thing off, what started this whole discussion, that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be rose again. And I think and his disciples are thinking, no, wait a second, if that's true for you and we're following you, what's in store for us? Are we going to, is the same fate going to happen to us? And I think Jesus is just saying to them, here's some hope, that's happening to me, but all of you will remain alive to see me resurrected from the dead. That's what I think he's saying there.
The cross of Christ is our message. The cross for Christ is our method. He said, and another way of rephrasing this, and I'm doing this as a conclusion, for you are not setting your mind on things above, but on the things of man. We hear of this fine sin a couple times by saying sin is preferring other things rather than God and then acting on those preferences. In that case, our walk and our talk don't match. But faith, and, and then Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Faith is just the opposite of sin in that respect. Faith is preferring God over everything else and then acting on that one preference in any and every aspect of our life. What does it look like for us to, uh, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? We, again, I want to understand that this was created to help us answer that question, to put some legs, some steps, thus the name, pathways, to what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? This is a, a description, not the only, but a description of what that looks like. It's meant to be very practical. Communion, we end always pointing to communion, and we do that on purpose. We want to remind ourselves that what we have just talked about today, particularly the message of the cross of Christ, is for everyone to respond to in repentance and faith. If you have responded to that message, you have believed that Christ died for your sin, and you've repented from that, and you are attempting to the best you can to walk in that way, we want to invite you, whether you're a regular part of Red Sea or not, to come and take communion, to go up front with yourself, with somebody else, home community, family, and go up there, break off a piece of bread, dip it into wine or um, juice, whatever you prefer, and take it. It represents the body of Christ. It represents the blood of Christ. And I want to leave with this one verse that, that Paul reminds us of, that as you take communion, remember that the word, the message of the cross, is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the message of the cross of Christ. We thank you that we can celebrate that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach you with both freedom and confidence. And Lord, I pray that you enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts, so that we can not only understand, as you had to tell Peter, that what it means for you to be the Christ and what it means for you to die for our sins, but you would also open our hearts to respond in repentance and faith to that. Not just for the first time, but every time. Every time we think of that, to rejoice in what you've done for us and to prefer you over everything else and then to act on that preference. And Lord, we thank you for this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at